I don't know for those of you who uh, have any recollection of uh, certainly an iconic American uh, figure, uh, namely uh, Frank Sinatra. Perhaps he's uh, escaped your own age, but nonetheless, uh, some of you uh, recognize that name. Uh, one of his most favorite hits of all times uh, was the song, My Way. Uh, five times the lyrics have the refrain, I did it my way. Uh, popular, of course, I think in culture, but uh, it is in total and absolute conflict with the God of heaven. Uh, for to know him, there is but one way, and that is his way, the way of the one true God. Uh, that song, My Way, of course, uh, will end up in the ash heap of history. Because if there's one thing for certain, it is that all of Scripture shouts to us that God has the only way. And in his Scripture, he reveals to us that way. And in the moving of the Spirit in our hearts, he would have us to say, Lord, Lord, in thy grace, may it be the way of God. That we might walk in the way that the church has walked for centuries. And may we enter the glories of the way of heaven. Uh, that is the way of God. And that way of God is expressed for us this morning uh, in the text, in particular verses 6 to 7 uh, of Isaiah chapter 55, as a way of faith and repentance. If you want to know how to walk in the way of God, it's, of course, faith and repentance, the beginning of the way to walk in uh, the entrenched path of which our forefathers have gone before us, faith and repentance. Faith is the conviction and reliance that God's way is the right way. And repentance is moving to that way, forsaking our own way, acknowledging that our way comes up short every time, but that his way is right, and by faith we desire to walk in his way, for we know the destination for which God moves us in his grace. And Isaiah captures this for us in four imperatives, again, verses 6 to 7. By imperatives, I mean they are commandments of God, as he moves us to his way, which is the only way. Again, if you look at the text, Isaiah chapter 55 and the sixth verse, seek, seek the Lord. Second imperative, call upon him. Then verse 7, forsake. And lastly, return. Let him forsake and return uh, to the Lord. Now, the first two, of course, have the Lord as the object. Uh, seek the Lord while he may be found. All of us are seekers. We seek employment. We, we seek friends. Uh, seek happiness. Lots of things. None of them in and of themselves wrong or evil. But first and foremost, first and foremost in all of life, seek the Lord while he may be found. Secondly, call upon him. In embracing God, calling upon him, he might be gracious to you. And again, call upon him. All of us call. We call our friends. We call our neighbors. We call our parents. Uh, we call loved ones. We call our spouses. If you have children, you call your children. But first and foremost, call upon the Lord while he is near. 
The modifiers, while he may be found and while he is near, interject, do they not, a sense of urgency? Why? Because he may not always be near. He may not always be found. Had a very good friend in high school. Uh, lost his wife to cancer and entered it into a time of, of incredible depression from which he simply uh, could not recover and took his own life. He once told a colleague of mine in the Army that uh, he thought uh, that you uh, sought the Lord when you were old. Seek God when you're aged. The problem with that is, is that he may not be found. He, he may have moved. He may not answer, uh, because God is not always available. Uh, we have a way of thinking, do we not, certainly from even modern American church culture, that at any time, 24-7, he's there for you. The problem with that is that he may not be. And we find one illustration of this in uh, a book uh, that's written from the hands of a man who's known as one of the wisest men in all of the world, Proverbs chapter 1. If you're struggling with this reality, simply turn in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will even laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes on like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come on you. Then you will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they shall not find me. And the mysteries of the providence of God. If you do not know the Lord, you should diligently begin to seek and to call and ask God would be gracious to you and give to you the light of his divine word that you might see what it means to see seek the Lord and to call upon him. Because there may come a day in which you will call upon him and he will have hung up the phone and all you will get is a busy signal. God is not always around for those who trash his word and who turn their back upon him and who make light of his commandments. But again, sometimes we uh, will find when we seek for God terrible judgment and storms and whirlwinds. A reminder that there is a sense of urgency. Call. While he may be found, and seek him while he is near. Now, the last pair of commandments abandon or forsake your way. Uh, there is a time in the faith, in true, genuine faith, that we embrace the reality that our way is wrong. We've tried it, and we know that it will end in ruin and destruction. And that there's one from the scriptures that tells us that there is only one way, and that we must forsake our own, and return to the Lord. Uh, this word return embraces the great theology of repentance, that we turn from our way and we embrace his way because we know our way is wrong and will lead to ultimate ruin. If you look, for example, uh, what that embraces in verse 7, uh, the wicked will forsake his way. As much as you may enjoy Frank Sinatra, his, uh, his song, I Did It My Way, is incredibly, 
tragic and vacuous and empty theology. That song, by the way, may be part of the philosophy of your life, but I'm just simply telling you from the prophet Isaiah, you better act, you better hear the word of the Lord and turn and forsake your way. Because that is the sure and certain way to eternal peril and absolute, total, irrevocable loss. And Frank Sinatra will tell you how to get there by singing the words, I did it my way. And the prophet Isaiah says, do it my way. Do it the way of God. Turn from your way. There's something else that's there, is there not? And the unrighteous man ought to turn from his thoughts. Epidemic in our culture is that we, uh, we're the captain of our own salvation. That we can make it on our own way. That we're smart enough to figure it out. And oh, God has his way, but we have our ways. Uh, sometimes we envision the faith of orthodoxy to be a cafeteria. We can pick and choose what we want and what we do not want. Scriptures shout to us because they come to us as an intrinsic whole of the way of God. And uh, we ought to be very careful about seeing that God in his uh, majestic wisdom sets before us a cafeteria. I mean, I know the drill. I used to take my kids to the cafeteria and it was, uh, I don't know, cantaloupe and chocolate chips who gave a rip about green beans and whatever, whatever. But God sets a way before us in all of its steps and all of its ways and all of its paths and all of its winds and in all of its directions. And we need to turn away from our thoughts and embrace the thought and the mind of the majesty of God. We can only do that in the scriptures, and that is what is before us this morning. Contextually, the way of God is the way of restoration and exodus. The church is part of the last great exodus of time. We are moving from this world that's under a sentence of destruction to everlasting glory in the presence of God. In the Bible, that's called an exodus. We are on that way, moving in our great exodus to God. And we leave our way for his. More critically from the scriptures, we know it's the only way. There is no cafeteria. There is one way to God proclaimed before us in Holy Scripture. But majestically, Isaiah seals this with the promised latter part of verse 7. He tells us what to do, and then he reminds us what we have when we do what he tells us what to do. And what is that? He will have compassion on him. And he will abundantly pardon What you get is when you begin the exodus on the way to God in his eternal, everlasting, glorious presence, is you get pardon and forgiveness. Imagine living under a sentence of death, which everyone that's ever born into this world is under. And God, through his grace, through Jesus Christ, his son, gives you pardon a writ of safe passage through this dangerous world, a writ of absolute certainty that you will come to the end of the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. 
and your body will be turned inside out and achieve the fullness of the glory of him who is the firstborn of the dead, even Christ. When you begin the way of God, when you adopt his thoughts as over against your own, uh, you come to this glorious understanding of forgiveness and pardon that's total and absolute. And so, it's really true, is it not, that the imperatives are all the more critical to seek, to forsake, to call upon the God of heaven, that he might be gracious. Pardon, forgiveness. And the key to these two promises is, of course, that the blessings are had in no other way than God's way. The world has its promises. They will all unravel. They will all come to no end whatsoever. But God's promises are sure and certain uh, because he is the one true God. Oftentimes, Christians will acknowledge uh, the simplicity of the phrase that there's but one way, and there is. It's the way set forth in the Bible and that Christ is the door to the exodus, and he's also the end of the exodus in everlasting glory. What's instructive about these four imperatives is that they follow the identity of the of the servant in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 3 to 5. Christ is a witness. Christ is a leader. Christ is a commander. They certainly follow, of course, the last great fourth servant song in Isaiah chapter 53, where we learn of the majesty of the atonement, that uh, we had an eternal liability before God, and he paid the price in full, totally, that uh, we might embrace pardon and forgiveness because he secures for us in his death and resurrection pardon and forgiveness. And that God dispenses these blessings only for those in his way. He does not accommodate himself to other traditions and provision. And thus we have one of the great watchwords of the Protestant Reformation, Christ alone. Christ alone. He's the door to the exodus. He's also the end point, the glorious presence in which he will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of the fullness of the majesty of his own glorious resurrection. The forgiveness is in Christ. The Old Testament promise, promises this uh, everywhere, but uh, one favorite place uh, uh, for me is uh, Jeremiah chapter 33. In verse 8. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. If you have your Bible open to that text, I simply want to draw to your attention to majestic words. All of their iniquity. He will cleanse us from all of our iniquity. He will pardon all of our iniquities. That's the grace and the majesty of God and his son. It can be had in no other way. You can search the world. You could uncover every rock, go down every path. They will all end in ruin save the one true way of God. But in him, there is full, total forgiveness and pardon. Had in no one else, no other religion, but Jesus Christ the righteous. This uh, reality is confirmed for us in 
in our text uh, in verses 8 to 12 because it's here that Isaiah gives us two reasons that the origin of the blessings of God are found only in the divine way in mind. So God's gracious to us. He tells us what to do and then he gives us reasons uh, as to why it's just that way. The first reason is in verses 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, the, way, the reason to seek God and to call upon him is because of the majesty of the divine mind that's infinite in its wisdom and perfections. And God discloses a measure of that in Holy Scripture, which is the word of the Lord. Uh, the comparatives are between the thoughts and ways of God and those of man. Sometimes we think we're pretty smart. And certainly as civilization advances, we uh, seemingly get smarter and smarter. But that's the way of worldly success, and we're speaking of the way of divine success and the way to heaven. And uh, no tradition of man can tell us how to get to heaven. No discipline in all of the institutions of higher learning, and neither can any advanced degree in and of itself in worldly sphere tell you the way to God. Only God can do that, and only God does it in his word, and he does it by Jesus Christ, the door to the exit. There are lots and lots of smart men and women in the world in which we live, but none of them have nothing compared to the infinite wisdom and foreknowledge of the great God of heaven. And that's the reason we seek and call upon God, because his mind is greater than ours. Think of it in this way. If he created your mind, how much smarter is he than you are? That the way of God is exclusive to all other religions. The way of God rejects every other way that promises to end in heaven, but only his way is the right and only way. That God has his thoughts and ways and every other way is totally irrelevant other than the way that has been declared and confirmed for us in Holy Scripture as the word of God. The conceptions, designs, and plans of man about the final exodus and our relationship with God have no consideration whatsoever in the divine economy. All over America, and even, I sadly tell you, all over presumably Christian churches, we are learning words like, well, there's lots of ways to God. The prophet Isaiah is saying, there are not, there is but one, and that is the way that God declares to us in Jesus Christ, his son. That we are to reject our way for the higher, the better, the greater, and the only way prescribed in heaven. You can go to every physician and ask for every prescription imaginable. But when it comes to the way of heaven, there is but one prescription, and that is Jesus Christ is the door to the exodus that ends in his face. 
seek it any other way. And you will never get there. Drink of the promises of men and every other religion of the world. And they will all prove false. You might say, well, this is certainly the height of pride. I'm just simply telling you certainly it is the depth of the wisdom and the majesty of the grace of God in the word of God. That we are to reject our way for the higher, the better, the greater, and the only. And may God give us the grace to do that with alacrity and certainty and to move quickly. For there may come a day in our own soul in which we call and he does not answer. In which we seek desperately, but he cannot be found. The second reason that the blessings of God are found in the way of God in verses 10 and 11, expressing the exclusivity of source and cause of the great blessings of God, forgiveness and pardon. Sometimes those words, I think, have the sense of sharpness that they ought to have. We maybe use them too much in the church, and so, you know, you know the old frame, familiarity breeds contempt. But imagine if you were a prisoner in a prison locked and there was no way out and that the courts that you appealed to were continually saying no you're you're going to stay in prison until the day you die but there comes a word of forgiveness and pardon and that's exactly the way of man we are born into the prison of sin the kingdom of darkness rules over us lock stock and barrel and God and his son Jesus Christ comes and sets us free in full pardon and full forgiveness to bind our hearts to his way and to his thoughts. Now, the text here begins with a great analogy from human nature. Rain comes from heaven to water the earth so that the crops might grow, so that the farmer might reap and process the crops and food end up on our tables. Works in a measuring that way. A lot more complexity to it, of course, but simplicity. Where do the blessings of our, of our food come from? Well, you can trace it back to rain, the naturalistic sense. It's simply rain. And rain seemingly comes on its own, does it not? I mean, sometimes weathermen are pretty good, but sometimes they're pretty bad. It's just seemingly that's the way it happens. Sometimes they promise rain and there's none, and sometimes they promise nothing and there's rain. But one thing for sure, it doesn't rain sideways, and it doesn't rain from the ground up. It comes from up down, and it rains and waters the earth that we might have uh, material and physical blessings. And of course, there's something else that's more important about this marvelous gift of, of rain, is there not? Have you ever gone to uh, down to pay your water bill and say, look, here's uh, 15 bucks for rain. Uh, bring it next Wednesday, I'm in need of some. doesn't happen that way, does it? You don't pay for it. You don't put a couple of quarters in the slot and pull it and hear the ka-ching and it rains. It just simply comes by the grace of God or it does not come by the grace of God. Perhaps to teach us how desperately we need God for the presence of rain. God waters the earth. That's the way it is. There's no other way. You cannot order it and neither can you order what it causes and brings. It happens or it does not. 
heaven is in charge of rain. To remind us that the source of the great blessings of God to us in pardon and forgiveness come from heaven. And no other source or origin or provenance do they come but from heaven. That's where rain comes from. And that's where the blessings of God come from when it comes to pardon and forgiveness. God gives them to us from heaven. It's solely entirely divine. But then in the text, of course, as you might imagine, we traverse from the natural order to the spiritual order and from rain to the word of God. Spiritual blessings come to us from the word of the Lord just like the blessings of food come to us from water. And they come in no other way. They can be found in no other location but the word of the Lord. Divine blessings are caused by the divine word, that God sends his word to provoke and invoke the great treasury of pardon and spiritual forgiveness forever. Let's look at one text that suggests this. Of course, we will look at many, but Psalm 147, 15th verse. He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. That God dispatches his word to the earth, and the word goes and begins to provoke and to cause things. And one of the things it causes as it runs to the earth is it causes divine blessings. As God simply opens the heart of a dead sinner, that there might be the grace of pardon and forgiveness. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11, So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without seceding in the matter for which I sent it. The word of God, that God by his word causes the heart to open, and forgiveness and pardon to be grasped and to held on to. The majesty, of course, of the grace of God that he causes all of spiritual blessings. He causes, of course, all material blessings because he's God of all the earth. But when it comes to the church and spiritual blessings, he dispatches his word to secure his people, to capture them, to set them free, to guide them, to be their watchtower, and to give them safe passage all along the way to take them by his sovereign word to the destination appointed for the sons of God. That it accomplishes everything intended by the divine mind. No possibility of failure with the divine word spoken by God. No possibility of inaction. No possibility of impotence. It's the way of God. The effect of blessings is tied to this singular cause. And the singular cause of the word of God is purposeful. It doesn't roam around as if it's lost, needing to be found. That God speaks. It's like the hunter seeking his prey. Tracks the prey sees the prey, draws his bow with an arrow, shoots the prey. So it is with the divine blessings. God seeks his prey. He seeks his people. He draws his bow. 
and the arrow is fired purposefully and with direction and with intensity to secure everything that God intends by his word. All he has to do is speak. Think of the power of that. The spoken word of God. No occasion for failure or inaction or impotence. Everything secured by the intent of the divine mind in the spoken word. It secures the intent of its author. It's the way of God. There's no other way. I love the words that God says in this text. It does what I desire. It prospers where I send it. In other words, it's going to prosper. It can do nothing else. If it does not prosper, it's not the word of the Lord. God is sovereign. It's his way. God creates. How does God create? Does he have to go to an engineer and get some plans, go to an architect and get some more plans and some drawings? Does he have to go to the city council to get a permit? God doesn't have to do any of that. He just simply, when he wants something, he speaks and it is so. Because he is God. He doesn't do it by permission. He doesn't need a permit. He simply commands. And it happens. It's the power of the divine word of the Lord. Let's look at some texts uh, where this is so. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23. For I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness It will not turn back. And to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Notice it will not turn back. In other words, it's going to secure the divine object. Remember when I was a little boy, I had a neighbor played as little boy friends, as little boys do. And his mother had the most obnoxious, piercing voice of all time. And when she would call for her son to come home, it just rattled your soul almost. But oftentimes he would blow her off. Well, she thinks he wants me home for dinner. I have my own plans. Let's keep playing marbles. Or whatever it is we were playing. That's not the way of God. He commands and it happens. The arrow flies to its mark and secures its object. And he carries off his booty because he is God majesty of the word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. You know that's a figure of speech. He owns everything. And from ancient times, things which has not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. There's only one person in all of the world and civilization and history and time eternal that could say such a thing, and that is God. And he has said it, and he has spoken, and it is so. The word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 3. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. No other person could say that. No king, no prime minister, no general, no admiral. Only one can say that. And it is the Lord High God of heaven himself. And he says it, and it is so. It is, uh, as you know, uh, the theology of Genesis 1, creation. God said, let there be light. 
and, and there was life. He doesn't have to say pretty please. He doesn't have to go to the city council and ask for permission. He speaks and there's life. And then, as it happened, every occasion, divine creation, Genesis chapter 1, we read, and it was so, and it was good. And then at the end, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Because that's the way of God. He speaks, and at the end of it all, it was very good. God is so pleased with everything that he did. Because of the word of the Lord, it's a creative word. I speak lots of words and nothing happens. God speaks, everything happens because everything has to obey him. Everything has to obey him because of who he is. It's the theology, is it not, of the incarnation? It is uh, not other than by the divine design that we read in John chapter 1. The word became flesh. God sent his son, the eternal word of God. It became flesh in Jesus Christ. And God prospered his son. The text here reads that the word of God will prosper wherever he sends it. And God prospers his son as the eternal word of God that takes upon himself human nature. The word of God. By the way, this very word prosper is used of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will secure the salvation of everyone intended and lose none of all that the Father gave him to save. The incarnate word gathers his people and puts them in the way of God. By the way, there's a remarkable parallel of this word in Exodus in the book of Acts. Let's look at a couple of texts. Acts chapter 6. Verse 7, and the word of God kept on spreading, moving, advancing, conquering, winning, and judging. Purposeful. The word of God kept on spreading. Acts chapter 12 and verse 24, majesty of the word of God. How is it described by Luke? Book of Acts, Acts 12, verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. You would expect that, would you, would you not? And can't you connect from Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11 to the book of Acts, the word of the Lord, prospering, winning, saving, kicking down doors, setting prisoners free. God speaks, chains fall off, eyes are opened by the grace of God. Isaiah, pardon me, Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. And so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. How could it do others? The word of the Lord prevails. Dismiss it to your ruin. Respond to it for everlasting joy. Reminder, the word of God. In other words, the restoration promises of Isaiah have fulfillment in Acts and continue today. That God uses his word to call and equip his people the synonym, again, for the last exodus, the way of God to God, caused by the creative word of God. Blessings come from the word of God. And by the way, there's a great application here, is there not? What ought we to be doing in the worship services of the church? Preaching the word of God. 
because that's how divine blessings come. They come to reign upon the people of God, to prosper them, to grow them, to move them, to open their hearts. It's the way it is in the divine economy. God uses his word. I know that all over the world today, there are people saying we need to do this, and by golly, we better have this program, and you know, maybe we need to adopt bingo, and well, maybe we need to try a new uh, musical this or musical that. And I, I suspect some of those things have a place in the church, but what must have the preeminent place and the only place in terms of the direction to the eternal God is his word, incarnate in his son, set before us in holy scripture that we might learn the way of truth and righteousness and peace. This is the way to God. It's folly to supplant his ways with our ways. We may produce an effect, but it may just be simply that, a worldly effect that will not stand in the day of judgment. So God promises us blessings and forgiveness and pardon. He causes those blessings by his divine word that come to reign upon his people that they might grow and increase and expand his kingdom. Uh, verses 12 and 13 come to us as a conclusion of uh, the promises of God, uh, the reward, if you will, for faith and repentance. Uh, it, it's, it's entirely likely that verses 12 and 13 uh, are more than a conclusion of Isaiah chapter 55. It may very well be that they're a conclusion, and I think they are, uh, to the entire section in the prophecy of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 49, with the promise of deliverance in the servant's son. Moving us to recognize and apprehend that the identity of the servant's son is Jesus Christ, and the way to blessing is in him and him alone. Uh, and so given his success, we shall go out, look at the text, we will go out with joy, be led forth in peace, joy and peace, realizing that we have now come to the end of our journey. And uh, our hearts will erupt in joy and the majesty of the peace of God through Jesus Christ. The metaphorical language here, uh, I think, precludes a fulfillment and a return from Babylon and therefore becomes eschatological to us. Uh, that God, of course, uh, dispatches his spirit to lead us in his way. Uh, that we might enter into our destination in the fullness of joy and peace. And so the text reads, I think, and the reason I believe it's eschatological is uh, the point of the text. The mountains and the hills will break forth into the shouts of joy before you, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. What a majestic sight that will be. Entering into heaven will we'll come to the end of our journey, and all of the created earth will rise up and shout for joy that the sons of God came to the end, the fullness of joy and absolute righteousness and perfection. Imagine the trees clapping. Something, again, of metaphorical language, but to remind us uh, of the joy of the faith in the redemption of the physical creation, that it, too, was subjected to the fall and the disaster of the fall of Adam, the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, Let's look at this in Romans chapter 8 because the Apostle Paul embraces the reality of this. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That our physical universe will be made new by the power of God. I somewhat, on occasion, become a cynic in our culture. You know, I understand there's a place for the Environmental Protection Agency. I understand all that. And some measures, I'm glad they're around. But they're not going to recover this earth. God will. By his power, by his time, and by his way. And the dwellers of the earth who have their hope in the Environmental Protection Agency or by extension by any uh, measure in government in and of itself have not a clue that God will fix this earth and God will make it right and he has started that work in Jesus Christ. And he leads his church in a righteous way. And we will come to the end. And the mountains will jump for joy when we enter heaven by the grace and the power of God. This is quite clear in terms of the theology in the text. Uh, in verse 13, when the thorn bush uh, is supplanted by the cypress and the nettle is supplanted by the myrtle, again, trees uh, overtaking of the thorns that are part of the curse of the fall of our forefather, Adam. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. And when Adam fell, curse fell upon the whole earth. And part of the curse is the fact that we have to go work uh, and sweat and uh, struggle, uh, do all the things that we do as a part of life, uh, part of the measure of the fall of Adam. Uh, childbirth is an expression, the pains of childbirth are an expression of the curse of the fall. Thorns of the earth. Here it means, of course, that the curse is lifted. When God comes again in his son, the curse will be totally overturned. and We will enter a new garden of Eden, uh, never ever to be supplanted again. And the prophet is telling us that our deliverance will be completed, that we will come to the end appointed by God. It's described for us... Uh, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 3, And he showed me a river, the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, middle of its street, and on either side of the river were the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall no longer be any curse. The greatest words, I think, ever spoken in the scripture, reminding us of the fullness of our redemption, there shall no longer be any curse. No wonder the trees will clap their hands in praise and adoration of the glory of the majesty of God for fixing it finally and totally and irrevocably and we as the sons of God will be there and the serpent will never enter again. The garden to overthrow it. Caused by the word of the Lord, the power of God. It will stand, Isaiah says, as a memorial to the reputation of our great God. Today we celebrate famous people, do we not? We, you know, you give uh, 
couple hundred million to a local campus and they'll, they'll name a gym after you or something. Your name will be there forever. Tragically, most people won't have a clue as to who you ever were and what you did, and by and large, tragically, even more, they could care less as long as they can get into the gym or the dorm or the classroom or whatever. God will take us as trophies and show the world that his majesty is great. And they will care, but outside of Jesus Christ, it will be too late. They will be lost because they forsook the way of God and did not call and did not seek the way of the Lord. That Adam brought the curse with all of its ruin, that God promised deliverance in his way. He made it so by his word. And it is a final event, irreversible. We will never fall again. God will secure us forever. The grace of God. Pardon and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, the last great exodus. We will go home to be with the Lord forever. The way of faith and repentance, bringing blessing and ultimate renewal by the word of the Lord. Praise God.